Good afternoon, this is Gary Cavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. I hope all of you have been well since the last time we spoke, particularly those of you who, it turned out after our last episode, are actually massive fans of John Lennon and took to my email, uh, which you can reach me at if you have any comments on the show or suggestions for further episodes. It's gary at grip.ie uh, to tell me how wrong I was about John Lennon and imagine... So, what are we talking about today, Gary? Are we possibly talking about um, the virus? Yeah, my my f- attempts to avoid talking about the virus and talk about other news, I think, have shown to be ultimately futile. And so instead, we must go where the people want, to the virus. Oh, God. Do we? Do we? Let's... Okay, if it is to be, let it, let it be. Okay, so we've seen, uh, we've seen Leo there yesterday. Not a full lockdown. And it's not a lockdown, Gary, anyway. So let's, you know, we're not in prison. Nobody's coming in at night and locking the doors and saying you have to stay in there for 28, 23 hours. No, I mean, if we were in prison, we'd be getting released right now. <laughs> yeah. But we wouldn't be carrying out burglaries of public houses in Dublin, Gary. Absolutely not, no, Michael. Because we would have been rehabilitated. Do you know what? Actually, before we start talking about the economy, I, I published an article there saying that um, the number of prisoners on temporary release had nearly doubled since the start of the month. I see. And I will just say this about the Irish Prison Service. Do you know every day, Michael, every workday, they release a um, a document which has the numbers of people in the Irish Prison Service broken down by prison, a couple of like variants of that how many beds are in that facility, how many are used, how many prisoners are on temporary release, how many people are on remand. Mm-hmm. Every single day. Really? Very transparent of them. I mean, when dealing with Irish government departments, I make the assumption that apart from the passport office, they're all going to be largely useless. <laughs> but the Irish Prison Service, like, can you imagine the HSE doing that once a week? Just wouldn't bother. No. So, you know, shout out to the Irish Prison well, Service. Why, why, why do you have uh, positive f- f- vibes about the passport service? They just seem to actually work. Certain parts of revenue work, certain parts don't. But the passport service seems to generally be on top of things. And apparently the people behind data publication for the uh, Irish Prison Service also tip-top shape. Yeah, yeah, very good. It's important you take time out of these uh, out of these things to... Give shout-outs to the right people, Michael. The people that work in the motor tax office in Wexford County Council are very nice. And on that issue, I I would appeal to Leo to consider yet again my call to suspend car tax for the period. It's sort of a let-no-disaster-go-to-waste thing about that, isn't it? Well, my car tax is due, so, you know. I was going to say, any time I've heard of any sort of, not even disaster, but slightly inconveniencing thing, your first demand is that we suspend car tax. Well, I, I wouldn't say it's my first, and it's not a demand. I, it, I think it's a suggestion. I think it's a reasonable one. And I think maybe when we come around to September, we could start talking about car- we could talk insurance, because I think that's an issue that we're going to have to deal with. As well. You're kind of like a cannibal in the start of a, a famine. Your chance to eat people has finally happened. That's a lovely image, Gary. Thank you for that. Anyway, the government has responded. It hasn't come in, not exactly with the, the full hammer, but with a um, bit of a hammer. Non-essential shops turned off, turned off, shut yeah, down even. Yeah. So would that include electronics stores? I'm I'm trying to get a grip on it because I know that might sound easy, but hardware stores are allowed to stay open. Yeah, so there's a list of uh, 14 that can stay open. Um, electronic shops can stay open. So you have retail and wholesale sale of food, beverages and newspapers. 
unless you're an off-license, in which case that doesn't count. Uh, retail sale of household consumer products necessary to maintain sanitation. Chemises. Chemises? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Is that like something between a chemist and a pharmacy? I'm reading it. It says pharmacies slash chemists, and that just became chemises. Yeah. Could be the, the word of the year, the chemistry. Pharmacies and chemists. Okay. Opticians, uh, medical and orthopedic goods, fuel stations, the repair of motor vehicles, essential items for the health and welfare of animals, laundries and dry cleaners, banks, post offices and credit unions, uh, safety supply stores, hardware stores, builders, merchants, office products, electrical, IT and phone sales, repair and maintenance services for the home. Very good. That's actually quite a lot. It's a, it's a fair bit. I mean, to be honest, when I were, I drove down the main street the other day here, I noticed like, <clears throat> before the injunction came in, shall we say, but the, the device, all the pubs were closed, the, the coffee shops were closed, and anybody who knows Gory knows that, that basically a third of the town is closed. The bookies were closed already, um, and there's always something to bet on. Although not that much, maybe. Debt tolls. Sorry? You could bet on debt tolls. Yeah, I think... I, I, it comes out every day. You could. You could. I mean, Michael, think of it this way. If they're low, you, you bet that they'll be high. And then if they're low, that's good because people haven't died. And if they're high, well, at least you've won some money. Yeah, I would suggest that anybody who believes in stuff like luck, karma, superstition, tempting fate, anything like that, atavistic or not, would be... Uh, and I would say that most gamblers believe in something in, in, uh, in that life, would probably stay away from that particular bet. The worry would be that you'd find yourself included in the figures. You'd win the bet, but shall we say, lose the game. But you'd still win the bet. Yeah, you'd still win the bet. So it's a rather curious situation, isn't it, Gary? Well, I, well, I think it's slightly curious. That we are now, having been quite a bit more restrictive in the approach than the United Kingdom had been for a while. The United Kingdom now has sort of slightly leapfrogged us in the response. Uh, we're not quite at Spanish levels yet, or indeed Russian. The Russians have really cracked down. Do you see that? The uh, Rus- Putin has introduced this thing where anybody who is being told that they have to self-isolate and they're caught outside the gaff, uh, a potential 15-year prison sentence. And that's a prison sentence in, that's prison in Russia, Gary. Not like a nice Scandinavian prison. Not like Port Leash. Uh, it's still not a kind of North Korean level where they just shot people. No, that's true. But shall we say, I doubt you're going to get strip loin steaks. You definitely won't be made, you definitely won't be allowed to uh, go out and buy uh, baking goods. I asked my uh, I asked my girlfriend, and for those who didn't hear this, it turns out Port Leash, you can go to local shops if you're one of the Republican prisoners. And uh, there was a long, long laundry list of things published that these people had bought, including a great deal of steaks, but also a load of um, confectionery products. And I asked my girlfriend, because she bakes and I don't, because like, traditional gender roles. You amaze me, Gary. I'd imagined you were a man with a sponge. Mm. And uh, she tells me that it looks like they were making uh, some sort of toffee sauce, possibly with a cheesecake. Well, certainly, from what I saw, they had um, brown sugar, cream, and butter, and that's 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 certainly that's a, a toffee sauce, the kind that you'd have, say, with a sticky toffee pudding. And it's good to be in prison, I suppose. If you can, how can you be having a bad day if you're able to make toffee sauce? Yeah, why are they making it on anyway? I imagine they have free use of the kitchen. Would they? Well, I suppose I'm thinking Goodfellas here. Have you seen Goodfellas? 
Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, in the in the prison cell, they had a hot plate of some kind on which to cook the steaks. Maybe they had the kitchen. Yeah, I know Republicans have very specific privileges. Yes, they 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 get things that other prisoners simply would not do. Moving on from toffee sauce, yes. the government, these government measures, particularly the the wage support package they're putting yes. out. So, for those who haven't heard, the government will fund up to seventy percent of salaries up to a maximum of 38000 per year. It's basically to encourage employers um, and companies to keep staff on the pay- payroll rather than sacking yeah. them. So you're looking at a take-home pay of about €410 Euro if you were earning €38,000. €410 per week. The figures are a little bit unclear, Gary. I saw some saying you're talking about a, a ba- 38000 basic. Some Others are saying 44000 Well, Leo had previously said forty four, but now it looks like it's going to be thirty eight. Right. And then if you have lost your job due to COVID-19, the unemployment payment for that is uh, €350 Euro a week. Okay. So the problem here is that this is going to be ferociously expensive. Yeah, well, yeah the estimate uh, was £2.4 and it's going to go up from that. I think we're now saying four billion over twelve weeks. Yeah. Which, I mean, we had a budget surplus that took us several years to put together. We don't have that anymore. No, that's gone. But you know, at least we had a budget surplus. That is true, actually, and I mean that's something for Finnegale. Or well, yes, we'll say it's for Finnegale, or we'll say it's for the elastic properties that the Irish economy could. You know, uh, we've had a lot of discussion about this, um, the nature of the economic response, the correct economic response. What they seem to be doing, I think, is enlarge the correct direction to go. They're trying to support the supply side, the institutional supply side of the economy, so that when we can start to work out how to begin a normal economic activity again, we haven't lost, shall we say, healthy organic chunks of the economy unnecessarily rather than going for a heavily uh, demand side uh, stimulus package although there are obviously demand side elements here in like wage support uh, like you say gary it's a question this is based on a 12 week a three month so we'll have you know, we'll have to see i mean one of the great debates about the response has been you know are, are these excessive are the is the closed down is this just the flu? Yeah. Now, I find I'm a little, like, I'm a bit tired of the is it just the flu thing because it's not the flu. No, but that doesn't, you know, it's because it's not the flu doesn't mean it's something else either. It's obviously also not the bubonic plague. It's something mm. in between. Um, I think one of the things that's most tedious about this and rather depressing, I don't suppose, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm, I'm, I know, in fact, I'm not the only one to have noticed that. In, in certainly in different countries, specific countries, you can predict the response to the kind to how we should deal with this based on people's political positions, rather than a sense. It's there's there's a certain degree, shall we say, like a football team hooliganism, not hooligan, football team cheering on their own side. So, for example, when we had a situation where the Irish governments and the British governments were pursuing very divergent approaches to the right. And you could see on social media, all of those people who would be, say, who had been supporters in Ireland of Brexit and had were fans of Boris and fans of Trump were all saying, oh, look, this is a, look at the British. They're not being hysterical and over the top and ridiculous about the whole thing. They're being sensible. They're taking a proper 
you know, informed approach. They're not going to kill their economies. And then on the other side, people who didn't like Brexit, didn't like Trump and don't like Brexit are saying, oh my God, they're playing with the lives of millions of their citizens. And my God, this is absolutely, you know. And it didn't seem to me a lot of the time that really either of them were particularly interested in the details of the, the nuance of the argument, rather, but that's my guy, this is your guy, and away we go. Yeah, I, th- I think there are, there are some important differences uh, between COVID-19 and the flu. One is, is the OR number, the measure of how effective it yeah. is. Um, it is not quite twice, but at the top estimate, because there's still a degree of uncertainty here, the top estimate is nearly twice as infectious as the flu. It has a longer incubation time than the flu. Flu is one to four days. This is one to 14, which means it can spread further because you don't know you have it as quickly. And so it's more difficult to contain. The hospitalization rate is nearly 10 times higher. And that's a very important number. Mm. Particularly looking at Italy. Yeah. Uh, and then the case fatality rate. I mean, the estimates for this are all over the place. Kind of going from one to you know, three, four percent. But that is that is strongly tied to your demographic. Some demographics have incredible debt rates from this. Of course, yeah. And some don't. So it's it's from people sort of go, well, is it the flu? And, you know, we don't shut it down for the flu. There's a couple of differences. The flu is already here. It is it is widely spread throughout society. Also, I think, and I want to get back to this, the fatality rates, but also I think the one the big, another big difference is, is, and I may be wrong on this, you might correct me on this, and, and just my understanding, the, the there's far, far more people in this who are asymptomatic, completely asymptomatic. Yeah, I mean, the, the the Chinese research, which they delightfully hid from the world until the documents leaked, shows that up to 30, uh, up to a third of people with this could be totally asymptomatic. As more and more testing is done, we could see that number going up. Now, if you have a situation where someone, where let's say half the people who have this have no symptoms, very difficult to stop that. Yeah. Because without with any sort of targeted thing to people with symptoms, because most people won't have symptoms. Um, I think that the point that should be made here is that flus kill every year far more people than COVID-19 has killed so far. Just in America, you're looking at 30 to 60,000 Americans will die of flu every year. However, so far... Yes. I think in Italy... I I saw a figure, I don't know if it's correct, that uh, around 17,000 people, or up to 17,000 people die of it, which sound, what did you say for the, the American number? It's thirty to 60,000, I think. Well, 60,000 would make more sense if 17 is the correct figure, because the population of Italy is around, what, a fifth, slightly less than a fifth. So uh, maybe the demographics there are different. Again, the demographics may be impacting on fatality levels of influenza in Italy. But whatever the number is, we can safely say that up to now, fewer people have died of uh, COVID-19 than have uh, would normally die of the flu. But sorry, I was interrupting you. You said the, the question, the, the important bit is up to now. Yeah, I'm, I think the, the thing is COVID-19 is nowhere near uh, as widespread as flu has become. So what we're effectively saying is even if it was like the flu, which it doesn't appear to be because... It causes a much more extreme response. If even if it was just like the flu, and it spread like the flu, like the flu, you could be looking at a flu that could kill ten, twenty, thirty, forty times more people than a normal flu. And I think one of the other things that people miss 
again, if I've understood this correctly, and neither thee or I, we're not, we're not virologists, experts in infectious disease, we're just people who can read what we can read, is that when this, if this is, shall we say, left into a population fairly unchecked, mm. that because of the transmission rates, because of the number of people who are asymptomatic, uh, that you get this rather, you get a very steep curve, and that you will have a period where you'll get a, a, re, a, a massive number of infections taking place in a relatively short period of time. And the stress that that places on your health system is enormous. And that doesn't have, that, at that point, we start not to talk about fatalities, which are simply as a result of COVID 19, but all sorts of collateral damage of other people who get into trouble because the health system has become overwhelmed. It's not just people who have the inf- this infection that will start to suffer, but people who have all sorts of other illness will become affected because they can't have they can't have the they can't access the kind of medicine that they need or the hospitalization that would be necessary because this, the system has been so overwhelmed in this short period of time. That's why they keep talking about this idea of flattening the curve. Would you say that's mm, I, reasonable? Yeah, I, I think. We're seeing widely divergent debt rates as well. Yeah. I mean, China, it was over 2%. The World Health Organization's official rate the last time I checked was 3.4. Um, Italy, it's it was 7.2. What was the average age of, fatali- of, of fatalities initially? I was, I've seen figures that between 79 and 81 years. So you're obviously, if that's the case, that you're looking obviously at a very particular demographic. And Italy has a, and even more so northern Italy, has a lot of very elderly people. I mean, one reason why they have a lot of very elderly, until this year, for many, the last, I don't know, many years, the average life expectancy in Italy was longer than anywhere else in the world. Hmm. So the Italian Institute of Health, earlier this month, now this this could be out of date by now because this was about two two weeks ago. At that point, the average age of death was uh, 81. Right. Um, also, 72% of those who died were men, which is an interesting thing, which we saw in China yeah. as well, but not that extreme. I think there it was 55 or 60% were men. But it does seem to kill more men than women. Again, another gender bias, Gary. Mm, yeah. Good for single men, though. <laughs> Good for 80-year-old single men, yes. Mm. Playing the field in the nursing home. Oh, God, you'll go to hell. Um, and then I think I, I would imagine over time that that age is moving down just because it's spreading more widely and there aren't that many. You know, Every time you move down, move down an age bracket, there are more people because other a lot of people die moving between them. So I'd say at this point, if I had to guess, I'd say you're probably in like the late 80s or sorry, late 70s, maybe like 77, 78. But um, the... There was a case, I mean, if we want to talk about, not data, but anecdata, one, one happy notice that came out recently the other day, yesterday, I think it was, a lady of aged 105 has recovered, and the numbers mm. in Italy have started, it would seem, to peak. I, I think I drew your attention to an article written by a professor of biophysics in Stanford, Mr. Uh, professor Levis, who got his doctorate in complex modelling. Mm. Anything, something which is you know vaguely relevant or more than vaguely relevant to this particular issue, and he's rather more optimistic about the uh, the thing. He says he thinks that the peaks are going to happen sooner and they're going to be less dramatic. But and that's the important 
things I think that people can, that a lot of the commentators missed when they were talking about. He did say that this would be assuming that very that people maintain strict social distancing policy. He, he believes that this is the key. No, no I, I mean, um, I was saying earlier about the OR number, that the, the, it's effectively the number of people um, that you would expect to be infected by one person who has that disease. Yes. So if the OR is five, every person who has it will infect five other people. Yes. And where social distancing comes in is bringing that number down. Now, I think, and I only saw this in passing, so I could be wrong. I think I saw a figure from the Irish Department of Health that said that on average, when this started, people who had uh, COVID-19 had been in contact with 20 other people recently, 20 different people. Yes. And now that that number is down to about five. Yes. Now, when you say contact, are you you mean con- contact resulting in contagion or just contact? Contact for, I think the HSE is measuring it with over 15 minutes contact right. with someone. So um, risky contact. Yeah. And then as well, we're also seeing some countries, three in particular, South Korea, Switzerland, and Germany, their debt rates are well below the others. Yes. And there is an argument being made that that's because those countries are aggressively testing everyone. Yes. that they, Not just those who have particularly bad symptoms. And that, so if you look at those countries, like Germany, the COVID-19 mortality rate is 0.4%, which is about four times more than the seasonal flu. Yes. So that may be coming about simply because they are testing everyone. And if that is the case, and uh, COVID-19 symptoms or, or death rate is only about 0.4%, that is obviously a very different situation than if the World Health Organization is correct. It's 3.4. I mean, that is... Uh, is it possible that the, the Italian numbers are skewing the WH numbers? It, it is. It is possible. You also have the fact that there's no international consensus on how deaths from COVID-19 should be put for or should be measured or how... So I think it's China. If you test positive but are asymptomatic, they don't count you as a case of COVID-19. Why? Which, um, because it's China and they'll find any way to rig the, uh, to rig the stats that they can. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago, just before they kicked reporters out of the country, yeah. foreign reporters? Yes. They were reporting that the you know demand for electricity had gone back up, and this showed that Chinese industries were uh, in affected areas were yeah. back in full operation. Yeah, and yeah. I think it was a it was a reporter from an American publication went to one of the factories, and everything was turned on. Yeah. So yes, they were right that electrical demand had gone up, but nothing was being produced yeah, they, because there was no one in the factory. They just turned the machines on, basically the lights and the machines. Yeah, that was it. And then they went, well, look, the, the electricity stats are going up. We must be producing more. And that's the sort of thing that China does, because as a as a Hong Kong protester so eloquently said, Michael, China is asshole. <laughs> it is bizarre for what is still officially a, a communist country. They are absolutely obsessed with their GDP figures. They're absolutely obsessed with their, their concept of face, of prestige. Mm. I mean, I don't think anyone believes the Chinese economic data. Also, I mean, these, these, I think China has, if not an actual legal responsibility for the deaths in Italy, the moral responsibility for those deaths absolutely rests on China because of China's effective lies to the World Health Organization uh, and its hiding of its own research on COVID-19, which showed a number of things that the Italians didn't know. Yes, that's... Uh, 
on dosage. If think if the Italians had known, for example, the levels of asymptomatic infection, that they would have taken a very different... The same with the Americans. When the Americans brought their people back from China, they didn't uh, isolate those who had no obvious symptoms because they didn't know that the Chinese had already found out that somewhere between a third and half of people with it won't have symptoms. Which is actually, the, the, as Steve Davis has been writing about this a lot, the director of education of the IEA, and he said one, one of the worst things about this is the, the level of asymptomatic numbers. I mean, there are lots of things that are peculiar, well, not peculiar, but particular about this virus, which make it particularly awkward to deal with. Um, well, we are where we, I, I mean, it, it's, the reaction of people, though, we won't, we'll probably, we'll, I think we'll probably come back to a, a number, shall we say, of the, the wider geopolitical issues here on this, on, on Saturday. Uh, Brendan O'Neill, former editor of Marxism Today and uh, editor of Spiked, and a guy who I think we would quite often agree with on this stuff. And we may, you and I may have different opinions on this anyway. On, 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 but Brendan is very much of the opinion that we are um, in the process of, we here and certainly he's talking about the UK experience wildly overreacting and going into a space where we're destroying individual rights and destruction of habeas corpus basically of authoritarian government and this is all about the elites and well anyway he may listen I hope he's right in sense that I hope he's right about the thing being a hysterical overreaction that this isn't actually anything like as serious as we think it is but that'd be great but it's funny he he's a big man for the demos for the people, you know, mm. the, the little man who voted for Brexit and took back his freedom. But the same people who at the beginning of this whole thing were in Britain were very much ah, it's a wild overreaction. I'm going to go down to the pub, and this is all nonsense. And for God's sake, it's not much more than a flu. As one of the uh, commentators on the Facebook page pointed out, it's not that the journalists in this case are fall are are leading. The, the people, rather the people are driving them. He said, in their area, this person was living in South Derbyshire, he said, exactly the kind of people that you're talking about, the ordinary, decent, working-class people, have turned into absolute fascists. They watched the news from Italy, they saw the graphs, and they thought, oh my good, mm, this is not actually what we thought it was. I would rather my parents didn't Yeah, die. bizarrely. And, and they've turned themselves into their, the kind of people that would happily go out with high-powered shotguns or rifles and shoot groups of teenagers who are hanging around on street corners. I mean, I, I have found the um, the sort of, you know, this is this is the end of a, a free society. Like, you're being told to stay home and sit on your sofa for like two weeks. You're not being rounded up and put into Chinese gulags. <laughs> Where your organs will be taken from you and your children will be wards of the state. We've been told that more people are going to have die from the fact that they're going to have to stay home and the terrible effect this is going to wreak on people, mental and physical health, or having to stay, not being allowed out and to socialise, than will ever die of the, the infection. We're told. Well, that depends how widespread the infection becomes. Well, it does. It? You see, and that's one of the problems. It's a bit like. I was talking to someone about this and I said who was very much pushing that line. I said, listen, it's a bit like you're watching a guy in a car driving badly, erratically at high speed. And I say, that guy is going to kill himself if he's not careful. And you say, nah, he's in control. He's just, he's a bit worried. And then, then just at the last second, before the impact, he activates the airbag and puts on the safety belt. 
he crashes and he gets out and there's a few broken bones but you know and the guy says see i told you it wasn't as bad he's yeah but he put on the safety belt deactivated he activated the airbag and that seems to have been if you look at the countries that people have been giving first uk sweden even germany Netherlands. They start off with one particular approach, which shall we say is a less authoritarian and less restrictive. But one by one, they all seem to be the United States the same. They they all seem to be going through this process of going to a. They reach a certain point and they go. Actually, maybe we need to up the restrictions. I think we need to evolve our response and ultimately seem to be getting to the same place as everybody else. I mean, ideally, yes. You don't have any restrictions on people's lives. Or things of that nature. But in the case of a virulent pandemic, which if it were to become widespread enough that it's just an annual part of life, would pretty much just kill everyone uh, who's old and infirm, I think most people will accept some um, some restrictions for a while. And that's the thing. One of the things that I think that's missing from the other side of the discussion here is the sense that time buys possibilities. Now, Mm. it may be the case, Gary, it may be the case that in the time that we can possibly buy by introducing these radical restrictions, nothing effective will happen. The summer will come, the autumn will come, the winter will come. We will will relax restrictions. We get the thing under control, but then we relax restrictions. Movement starts again, and then we start to see new cases coming up again, and we have to reimpose the same. And we end up doing this for 18 months or more, and we have absolutely massive effects on the world economy and it's all that's possible yes but it's also possible right now for example the who is coordinating a huge global trial of uh, a cocktail of antivirals that may potentially be an efficacious uh, treatment so there are i think at the moment over 65 scientific centers research centers working on treatments the time that we create may give them the opportunity to develop a treatment we will, I think we're fairly confident, develop a vaccine. Now, some people are saying a vaccine will take 18 months to two years. Others are saying, no, we, under the circumstances, we can get one in nine months. Some people are saying we can get one in five months. If we can get the money, get everything fast-tracked from the bureaucracy point of view. The point is, whatever the result is there, whoever is right, time is going to be an issue. I mean, can I just on on the World Health Organization point just before we wrap up? Um, the World Health Organization is led by a man called Doctor Tedros. He calls himself that; it's his first name. So, you know, you want to bell hooks this? Fair enough. Uh, he was the chap who tried to make Robert Mugabe a goodwill uh, ambassador of the um, UN. <laughs> and you—that's not a joke. No, that's, that's not, not a joke. He that's did not do that. Satire. So. Tedros is the World Health Organization's first African uh, director general. But there was, I f- when I was looking into him, because there have been, since this happened, there have been some arguments about the influence of China on the World Health Organization. Yeah. Because certain things didn't happen with the speed they were expected to happen, and certain odd decisions were made. But I went back through, um, just through reporting on our, on Dr. Tedros. And the weird thing is, I found a story from the Times, this is the Times of London, from 2017, which made the argument that he was actually appointed, as in Mugabe was appointed, by Tedros as a payoff to China, because apparently China 
strongly supported Ted Ross's election to the director generalship of the World Health Organization and helped galvanize uh, support behind him. And it was seen as a victory for China when he was elected because he was effectively Beijing's candidate. Right. So just thought I would mention that. Well, I think that's interesting. And I think it also just speaks as a more general point to the highly politicized nature of the United Nations. And shall we say the naive faith that I think far too many people have in the notion that the United Nations is this high, idealistic, independent organization that's just nothing about about nothing except peace, love and global understanding, but rather it's the locus of credible corruption and bizarre politics. I also found out that when Dr. Tedros was going forward as president, there were there was a controversy as to um the cover up of I believe three different outbreaks under his watch. Wow. So um people are being, should we say, perhaps unkind and saying that, well, if those controversies were correct and he's previously covered up palatable outbreaks of disease, perhaps there may be something about the current outbreak that that might impact upon. But I, of course, Michael, couldn't possibly comment on that. No, naturally. Anyway, Gary, I suppose we'll wrap it up for the time. Maybe we'll wish a good week and a healthy week to our listeners. And we'll be back again on Sunday for uh, our miscellany. Until then, all the best. Bye-bye.